Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. The Texas Collection is well known for its resources in the political, economic, and social history of Waco, Central Texas, and actually of Texas as a whole. But a less well-known strength of the collection is the wide array of materials relating to the history of architecture and the built environment of the state. Hi, I'm your host, Robert Darden. Welcome to Treasures of the Texas Collection. In addition to being a student of the museums in the United States and further afield, Dr. Kenneth Haferteep, the chair of the Department of Museum Studies at Baylor University, is also an architectural historian. He has written about such prominent Texas buildings as the French Legation and the Governor's Mansion in Austin, Ashton Villa, an early Victorian mansion in Galveston, and the Spanish Governor's Palace and the homes of Sam and Mary Maverick in San Antonio. Now, Ken, how is studying Texas buildings different from studying other parts of Texas history? The biggest difference is that to most people, buildings seem to be mute. Except for a few important public buildings or churches, the name of the original owner or the designer or builders is rarely carved or painted onto the structure. You can find out something about them from the county real estate records and tax records, and less often from newspapers or books or letters or diaries, but often we don't find as much information as we'd like. Sure. The biggest surprise is to most students is that buildings really aren't mute at all. Actually, buildings can talk. Okay. The trick is that they speak a different language than most people are familiar with. It's a language of materials, wood, brick, or stone. Mm -hmm. But it's also a language of structure, from the wooden framing of a shotgun house to the steel frame of a skyscraper like the Alico building in Waco. And it's also a language of ornament, from Greek columns on the Earl Harrison house to the stained glass windows in the First Baptist Church. People might also be surprised to know that buildings have families. Other buildings built at the same time or in the same region or by the same architect. Buildings which are like brothers or sisters or cousins, but also ancestors, uh, earlier examples of a particular building type or style. The more familiar you are with the, the larger history of architecture, the more you know of the language and the more a local building will tell you. All right, that makes sense. So. When did architects first come to Texas? I guess that was pretty early, right? Yeah, to the, to the degree that every person was their own architect. The first architects in Texas were the native men who made grass houses or tanned buffalo hides for a teepee, or out west around El Paso, the Hispanic women or native women who shaped adobe blocks and built adobe walls. Okay. A whole new type of architect, though, was the Franciscan missionary who was from Mexican cities like Carretero and was familiar at least with the local example of churches in the Spanish Baroque tradition. Uh, they came to, to Texas and, with the help of native workers, built the missions around San Antonio and El Paso, which are a very important part of the architectural legacy of this state. Now, Anglo-American carpenters and masons began, began to come in the 1830s and 1840s, 
There were no schools of architecture back then, and so anyone who was willing to build a house or a church or a courthouse could call himself an architect. That's cool. Yeah. Abner Cook, the master builder who was responsible for the Texas governor's mansion, called himself a mechanic sure. in the 1850 census, which doesn't mean someone who worked on cars, but someone who was familiar with many different mechanical crafts and trades. But in the 1860 census, he called himself an architect. Mm. After the Civil War, though, a new breed of architects came to Texas. They, they were men with practical building experience, but often with academic training in architecture as well. Okay. When these people moved from the more settled areas on the East Coast to frontier Texas, what did they think of the buildings that were already here? Um, Lucadia Pease and her husband, uh, the attorney and future Texas governor, Alicia Marshall Pease, were both natives of Connecticut, and they found that Texas really was a whole other country. <laughs> Mrs. Pease was struck by the newness, uh, including the indeed the rawness of Brazoria when they moved there in 1851. Here's a quote from one of Lucadia Pease's letters uh, from that first year. All of the houses here are small and walls sealed or badly plastered without papering. But in all these shabby houses, they have much costly furniture, sofas, marble slab tables, wow. bureaus and washstands, shade lamps, and some handsome window curtains with bare floors, though some have matting. Mrs. Pease was also not used to the Texas climate. Who when, is? <laughs> yeah. And when, when she and Marshall were planning to build a new house, they had to try to take into account both the Texas heat and the wintry blue northers, which could change the weather from balmy to frigid in a matter of hours. She wrote to one of her sisters back in Connecticut, Our new house is still a castle in the air, and we find it very difficult to draw a plan adapted to the climate i.e. rooms all south to catch the Gulf breeze, without which we could not endure the warm weather, and to avoid the northers, which are so much here dreaded. The square house is exploded, as the two north rooms would be useless, but the galleries or piazzas are here quite indispensable, as we live almost entirely on them through the, through the day, and at Mrs. Wharton's in summer, they put out their beds and sleep at night, and of course we must have them. For Mrs. Pease, the most important room in the house was actually outside, the gallery or porch. Its roof gave you shade and protected you from the rain, but whatever breeze there was to, was able to cool you off. Boy, I imagine that northern European visitors had an even harder time adapting to this climate. Ah, uh, yes. That was definitely true of uh, Alphonse Dubois, who was the French chargé d'affaires to the Republic of Texas representing King Louis-Philippe. Okay. Dubois was actually a commoner, but decided he could put one over on the Texans by declaring, declaring himself to be the Comte de Saligny. <laughs> His house, known as the French Legation, is the oldest remaining house in Austin, built 1840-41. But the only houses available for rent in Austin in 1840 were log cabins, and loose pigs kept getting into the diplomat's papers and linens. <laughs> so Dubois decided to build his own house on a hill east of town, uh, hopefully pig-free. It, <laughs> it was only four rooms arranged around a central hallway, but it had a large parlor and dining room so that Dubois could wine and dine officials of the Republic of Texas. However, the, the legation was completed only shortly before Dubois' abrupt departure from Austin, and he did most, if not all, of his entertaining in his rented log cabin on 6th Street. Um, Isaac Van Zandt, who served in the Congress of the Republic of Texas, representing the Marshall area, 
attended one of those fabulous dinner parties and wrote about it in a letter home to his wife. It was the most brilliant affair I ever saw, the most massive plate of silver and gold, the finest glass, and everything exceeded everything I ever saw. We sat at the table four hours. I was wearied to death, but had to stand it with the company. We had plates changed about 15 times. Oh, my. I'm sure Mrs. Van Zant was very sorry for her husband having to put up with that. But the Van Zant letters do show that a dining room can be a dining room, but it can also be a diplomatic tool. Yeah. When EMPs was elected governor, there was no mansion in Austin yet. He and Lucadia were forced to rent, and they could not even find a vacant house. So instead, they boarded with the, the family of former Austin mayor Thomas William Ward. Here's another snippet of a letter from Lucadia. Marshall had found it impossible to hire a comfortable house and consequently engaged our board with a very pleasant family, Colonel Wards, formerly from New Hampshire. They have a very good house for Texas, Mm -hmm. and we we are altogether very well situated. Lucadia could not resist that little dig comparing Texas to New England. The Ward house was a very good house for Texas. (laughs) When her husband decided to build a governor's mansion, there were no architects in Austin. He and the committee hired the leading master builder. Wow. Those are fascinating descriptions of life and architecture in early Texas towns, Ken. But do we know as much about life in the country? You know, life in the farmhouses and in those early plantations? Well, it it is harder to find detailed descriptions of plantations, especially from the antebellum era. Fortunately, at the Texas Collection, you can find a remarkable description of an antebellum plantation on the Brazos River here in McLennan County. It's an advertisement placed by W.W. Downs in a Waco newspaper, The Weekly Examiner and Patron, in the fall of 1877, um, a a dozen years after the end of the Civil War. And that advertisement reads, Fine Brazos Plantation for sale or lease. On account of the infirmities of old age, I offer my Brazos River plantation for lease or sale. The tract comprises 1,750 acres, about 1,100 of which is Brazos Bottom, the finest lands in Texas, and the balance 650 acres choice post oak and prairie. Of the bottom lands, there are 530 acres under fence and in a good state of cultivation, with steam gin and mill, blacksmith and wood shops, tenant houses, barn lots, and other improvements, including a country storehouse at one of the best stands for selling goods in the county. The place is well stocked with horses and mules, hogs, cattle, and corn, all offered with the place. This is known as one of the richest and prettiest and in all respects most desirable plantations in Texas. It is offered at a bargain to responsible parties on a small payments of cash. Address me at Waco or apply on premises, seven miles southeast of the city. My goodness, that sounds pretty good, Um, assuming it's all true, I guess. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Well, what's so striking about it to me is the way in which a plantation was a little town of its own. A plantation was not just one big house. Uh, not not the Scarlet O'Hara, Tara sort of thing, but right. arranged around it would be mills and shops and barns and even a country store. And did you notice what Downs referred to as tenant houses? That was where free blacks oh. who worked the land were living. Okay. But before the Civil War, those tenant houses would have been called the slave quarters. Ooh, got it. 
At, at the time of the 1860 census, in fact, Downs reported that he owned five house slaves who lived in two houses, um, obviously not the big house, mm -hmm. and 72 field slaves who lived in 12 houses. So you can kind of do the math there. Sure. Downs was the biggest slave owner in McLennan County. Uh, second place went to Mrs. Eliza Earle, the widow of Dr. Bayless Wood Earle who owned 61 slaves. This inf the census information tells us about the different lives of house slaves and field slaves. Uh, the house slaves lived in a small house with two or three people in each house, whereas the houses for field slaves averaged six people per house. It must have been mighty crowded. I bet. Did African Americans also have a role in the building trades at that time? Yes, definitely. In, in the antebellum era, many enslaved African Americans were skilled carpenters or brick masons. Uh, many slaves had to build and furnish their own quarters, while uh, other enslaved craftsmen were rented out to big construction projects like the 1852 state capitol down in Austin. Because Abner Cook owned 10 slaves in the 1850s, it seems highly likely that enslaved craftsmen helped build the governor's mansion. And the brick walls of Ashton Villa on Broadway in Galveston were built by uh, a man named Alec, who was an enslaved craftsman, who was purchased by James Morrow Brown just for that purpose. Alec and Mr. Brown are both long gone, but the house that they built still stands in Galveston. Amazing. Um, according to the memoirs of Mary Adams Maverick, um, uh, Sam Maverick and his wife, uh, Mary Adams Maverick, built a house on the northwest corner of the Alamo Plaza in 1850. Or should I say they had a German contractor build it for them. In 1847, Sam wrote to a U.S. Army officer in San Antonio explaining that, I have a desire to reside on this particular spot, a foolish prejudice, no doubt, as I was a, almost a solitary escapee from the Alamo Massacre having been sent by those unfortunate men to the Independence Convention. Uh, if Sam and Mary had their bedchamber in the south room upstairs, they may well have had a remarkable view of the old mission. That's a remarkable letter. I guess after the Civil War, though, Victorian architecture was the last word. For sure. The, the wonderful Victorian houses of Galveston, like the Bishop's Palace, were designed by the Irish immigrant architect Nicholas Clayton. And many Victorian houses in, houses in San Antonio, especially in the King William neighborhood south of downtown, were designed by the English emigre Alfred Giles. Um, there, were also, uh, there was also a great deal of interest at the time uh, of the 1880s with the, the competition for a new state capital for mm -hmm. Texas. The old Greek revival one from the 1850s had never been uh, very much admired as a, as a work of architecture. And there was a competition that brought in uh, architects from around uh, Texas, but also from beyond. And the winner of the competition was actually an architect from Detroit, uh, a guy by the name of Elijah E. Myers, who uh, uh, did the Texas Capitol and then went on to do the capitals in Michigan and in Colorado. So you can see his works in uh, a couple of, of states. But uh, as you may have noticed, the, the, the arrangement of domes and the wings for the House and Senate buildings is very much riffing on the uh, U.S. Capitol as it had been finished in the 1860s, but it uses that distinctive Texas red granite, mm -hmm. which is so hard to uh, to cut that that uh, Elijah E. Myers really had to simplify the detailing on the building, 
which turns out to be very nice. It has a rugged integrity to it and a distinctiveness. There isn't another capital in the U.S. that looks quite like the, the Texas State Capitol. So it's a real success in that regard. Is it true it's taller or bigger than the state cap the U.S. Capitol building in D.C.? <laughs> uh, you certainly hear that a lot, and it's one of those cases where it depends where you start measuring. <laughs> but the, and the same thing is true for the San Jacinto Monument and and its uh, a well-known rivalry with the Washington Monument. The book Inside Texas: Culture, Identity, and Houses by Cynthia Brandemart allows us a peek inside many Victorian houses. She scoured every archive in the state and further afield looking for photographs of Texas interiors that were taken before 1920. The results are amazing. It includes multiple photos taken inside, including the Gregor McGregor house in Waco. The house is gone now. It was on Columbus Avenue at 8th where the Masonic Temple is. But the house was photographed in 1896 on the occasion of a wedding. So we know what it looked like inside early on. The parlor of the McGregor house was, was richly decorated. It had wallpaper and carpets and elaborate furniture. Prominently featured on the wall was an engraving of Robert E. Lee on his horse Traveler. The image of Lee, the commander of the Confederate Army during the Civil War, was a powerful one for many Texans who had fought for the Confederacy. Oh, what a treasure. It's a shame it's lost. Are there notable things about Texas architecture of, say, more recent times? Yes, indeed. There have been a couple of books on John Staub, the architect of many of the fine houses in the early Houston suburb of River Oaks, which was developed in the 1920s and 30s. Okay. Um, he played a role in Houston similar to what, to what Birch Easterwood did in Castle Heights and Sanger Heights in Waco. They both specialized in what we call period houses, different types of American colonial, Tudor revival, sort of old English, and Spanish colonial revival. Staub also experimented with uh, house designs that recalled the, pioneer, the style of pioneer Texas houses. In the Texas collection, there's a great bit of evidence in, in the old uh, Waco News Tribune, uh, particularly the, the uh, issue of February 1923. The paper selected Birch D. Easterwood, the architect who had recently designed Brooks Hall on the Baylor campus, to design a model home to be built on Concord Avenue between 30th and 31st Streets. This was in the Highland edition, and readers of a two-page spread were encouraged to Drive out in beautiful Highland edition and visit the site where the model home is being built. It has sketches of the house and a floor plan. Great documentation. I bet. The News Tribune stated that Easterwood was selected because of his past and present achievements and because of his many satisfied clients. Of <laughs> the Texas Collection also has a great uh, Waco Chamber of Commerce publication from 1926 showing all the fine new homes that were being built in Waco. In the 1930s, Texans built a lot of great Art Deco architecture. That was a style that tried to be very consciously modern and to catch the jazzy spirit of the age. The buildings at Fair Park in Dallas were enlarged and remodeled for the Centennial State Fair I in love 1936. Those love those buildings. Yeah, the, the Hall of State is especially wonderful as an example of that Art Deco style. Fort Worth got into the act at the same time with the Will Rogers Coliseum and Houston with the San Jacinto Monument. And to spread the wealth around a bit, the state of Texas uh, built museums in Austin, Huntsville, Alpine, and Canyon. The state fair area is like, should be a UNESCO world site. It's <laughs> amazing architecture. Yes, it, and it is a National Register Historic oh, District. I love it. 
Now, do Texans have much to brag about in the even more recent architectural history? Well, I think two things are especially striking. Um, Texas has become a laboratory for skyscraper design. And in the last 50 years, Texans have also built an incredible array of museums. In the 1960s and 1970s, Philip Johnson was very active designing museums here. He designed the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth and the Art Museum of South Texas in Corpus Christi. Uh, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, the, the great German modernist, designed the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. And Louis Kahn uh, designed the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth. More recently, buildings have gone up in Houston by the Spanish architect Rafael Maneo. In Fort Worth, the new Museum of Science and History was designed by the Mexican firm of Legareta and Legareta. And the Italian architect, Renzo Piano, has designed the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas and an additional building for the Kimball in Fort Worth. I've seen those. They're both spectacular. They really are. Now, unfortunately, I'm guessing that a forward-looking state like Texas has probably demolished a historic building or two or three? Yeah, maybe four. The, the, the late Willard Robinson, who taught architectural history for many years at, at Texas Tech, published a book that was entitled Gone from Texas. The title was riffing on the old story that people leaving Tennessee or other states would uh, often carve GTT on their door which was a shorthand for gone to Texas. Robinson's Gone from Texas consisted entirely of wonderful buildings of the 19th and early 20th century that have been destroyed or so drastically remodeled as to no longer be recognizable. Dallas Rediscovered is another wonderful book that always makes me cry every time I look at it. That's because I was born in Dallas, and the book documents the wonderful Victorian homes and businesses and other buildings of Big D, almost all of which have been destroyed. Outside of Swiss Avenue, I can't think of too many. Yeah, Swiss Avenue is wonderful and just an amazing survival. Wow, what a shame. Still, on the other hand, Texas have been known to take care of their treasures too, I guess, and at Ab- least some of them. Absolutely. The, the, the first historic preservation project in Texas was, and this may not be a surprise, the Alamo. Good. As you know, the Alamo was originally Mission San Antonio de Valero, but it was preserved by the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, that patriotic group, because it was the scene of the siege of the Alamo during the Texas Revolution in 1836. The two leading members of the DRT, Clara Sevier Driscoll and Adina de Zavala, had a falling out over whether to preserve the remains of the building next to the Alamo Chapel. But the DRT has preserved and persevered and still has responsibility for caring for the Alamo today. I'm guessing that saving the Alamo gave rise to other preservation projects. Yeah, it did. Uh, On March 21st, 1915, Miss Adina de Zavala published an article in the San Antonio Express with the title, Governor's Palace with Imperial Coat of Arms Tells of Spanish Rule. Miss Adina claimed that it was the Spanish governor's palace, but in recent years, writers have acknowledged that it was actually the house of the Presidio Commander, because it was, after all, in the military plaza. On a 1766 map, it is simply called the Casa del Capitan. The publication of this article by Miss Adina de Zavala inaugurated a 13-year campaign that culminated with the restoration and reconstruction of one of the oldest buildings in San Antonio. The intensive restoration and reconstruction was carried out between June of 1929 and July 1930 by architect Harvey P. Smith. 
In, 19, in the 1930s, Smith went on to be the restoration architect at the four other missions in San Antonio. Now, a little bird tells me that you have spent just a few hours of your own in the Texas collection researching the architecture of German Texans. Am I right here? Yes, that is true. I've been working for more than six years now on a book that will study German immigrants to Texas from the 1830s up until the 19-teens. Uh, I'm looking at their rock houses and churches, but also furniture and artwork and even their gravestones. A great deal of work was done by the cultural geographer Terry G. Jordan back in the 1960s and 1970s, but it's time for a new look that goes more deeply into the subject. One of the things I love about going to the hill country are those gorgeous rock homes. Yeah, they, they really are a special um, aspect of the hill country, that, that limestone that's so distinctive of central Texas for one thing. And what I'm finding in my research on Germans in Texas is that even though uh, a lot of the old German ways, uh, like Fachwerk construction, tended to disappear pretty quickly, it took a long time for them to really embrace mainstream American building types. And there's this, this long middle period uh, in which there are German ways of ar arranging the rooms of their houses, but set in these simple story-and-a-half rock houses. And it's a form that that is just so distinctively German from the Texan hill country. And it's something that, that even today, people who, who move out to, to Fredericksburg who may may not have any German blood in them at all still think of that as the, the thing that they want a, a German-Texan rock house. Sure. So it's been very interesting uh, exploring all of those um, houses, and then seeing the way in which it's not until the 1880s that Germans began to get interested in Victorian design. And Alfred Giles, the San Antonio architect, came out and designed first the Gillespie County Courthouse, which is now the public library, uh, but then was hired by William Birschwal to design uh, a, a nice two-story rock house that's very Victorian in flavor and which Giles uh, saw as being very similar to the officers' quarters that he had built in San Antonio for uh, Fort Sam Houston. And those, of course, are also uh, – uh, Fort Sam Houston is on the National Register of Historic Places and lots of, of, of wonderful military architecture. You keep up with this. Are there any new books of note on Texas architecture to watch for? Well, um, it looks like we'll soon be seeing the first full-length study of J. Riley Gordon. Uh, it's a really great story. Uh, Gordon came from Virginia to Texas and in less than 20 years designed county courthouses all over Texas, including LaGrange, San Antonio, Waxahachie, Decatur, Sulphur Springs, Marshall, and the McLennan County Courthouse in Waco. Going under renovation right now. Yes. Wonderful. Thanks for reminding us of Texas architectural legacy, Ken, and the people behind it, just as importantly. You know, the Texas collection on the Baylor campus has the largest collection of, of related documents, maps, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, diaries, magazines, and newspaper articles, minutes, and official records you could ever want. For more information about the Texas Collection on the Baylor University campus, go to baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B, slash Texas. I'm Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism at Baylor University, and thanks for joining us on Treasures of the Texas Collection.
Treasures of the Texas Collection has been made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by the Ferguson Clark Endowment Fund. This has been a production of KWBU 103.3 FM, public radio for Central Texas.